This is Kyle Shenanigans, episode 982, a conversation with Back Issues, Michael Urie. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 982. It's our conversation with Back Issues' Michael Yuri. Michael Yuri is a, a fantastic editor and writer, but uh, for the last 20 years, he's, or almost 20 years, I should say, uh, he has been the editor of Back Issue Magazine, published by Two Morrows. Uh, it is one of my favorite, if not the favorite, comic book magazine that I currently read. Uh, I'm only, I'm embarrassed to say I only came across it the, for the first time only a few years ago. I just never heard it before. I was at a comic book store here in Toronto, and I happened to see an issue, uh, and I just absolutely loved it. I took it home. I couldn't stop reading it. I was reading it on the subway all the way home. Uh, ever since then, I've you know picked up numerous magazines, most of them digitally because they're just really expensive to end up being able to find in Canada, uh, but uh, I'm just such a huge fan of the magazine, so I was very grateful that Michael was able to uh, spend some time talking about the magazine, his career in the comic book field. Uh, he was an editor at DC and at Dark Horse, uh, and obviously he's been editor-in-chief of Back Issue for almost 20 years. It's uh, celebrating his 20th year next year. Fantastic magazine. I cannot recommend it enough. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. It was a great uh, way of kind of understanding more about how the magazine works, what type of features they look for, uh, what kind of keeps him going in terms of uh, what his own interests are, uh, the purview of the magazine in terms of time period, uh, the types of books and the creators they speak to. So I think you'll really enjoy this uh, this episode. Uh, it was a great conversation. I'm very grateful to Michael for sitting down with me. Uh, you can also email me at the Comic Shenanigans podcast at Comic Shenanigans at gmail.com. You can rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, the show is likely ending with episode 1000, which is coming up very soon. Uh, it will be coming out in almost exactly two months. It'll be coming out on August the 12th. Um, so, uh, yeah, big stuff. Uh, I'm uh, not sure what the next you know 18 episodes or so are going to have in store, but I'm definitely excited for, to uh, get them out for you and uh, have you enjoy them. So anyways, without further ado, enough of my rambling. Let's jump right into the conversation with Michael Yuri. Enjoy. Michael, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm very uh, excited to have you on and talk about Back Issue Magazine, but uh, before we can kind of get uh, into the, what you're working on currently, obviously, I want to have a sense of your your secret origin in terms of, you know, what kind of made you originally a comic fan and then led you to make, obviously, the, the big leap into the comic book industry. Well, um, my secret origin reveals my age, which I can no longer keep secret. And it's a good thing that uh, you, you can't see me in this particular interview. <laughs> it would certainly <laughs> prove uh, what I'm about to say. Now, I'm, I'm 64 years old, a very uh, you know, healthy uh, uh, 64, but that, that puts me in the time frame of being a child when the Adam West Batman TV show came on in January of 1966. I was a third grader. Uh, barely eight years old, and so I was the perfect demographic for the show, even though my parents were laughing you know, behind <laughs> me at it, and you know that, that made me mad because I just I didn't get it. I, I mean, it, I, I took it for real, right? But but I was eight and just sucked into that world of uh, you know flashy, colorful superheroes, and I started reading uh, superhero comic books at that point. I had been reading comics before that, but stuff like Casper. 
mm. you know, uh, you know, kid-friendly stuff, Bugs Bunny, uh, stuff that I was familiar with from cartoons on television, the Flintstones. But uh, from there, it was Batman, and that just sort of was my gateway to the DC universe, the Brave and the Bold, you know, Batman teaming up with the Flash and Metamorpho and some of the early issues I read. And so I just got pulled in, and then soon I discovered Marvel, and then boom, you know, here's another universe to explore. So I just really wanted to do that as a kid. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was, uh, by the time I hit junior high school, uh, to high school, I was writing and drawing my own comic books, starring my classmates as superheroes, and some of the teachers as super villains. And they didn't enjoy that when one of my comics would get <laughs> confiscated in class. But, uh, you know, um, but, you know, I was a kid in North Carolina. That's where uh, I, I live now, uh, by the way. I, I came full circle some years back. I came back home after working in the industry and going to different places. But uh, back in the 1970s when I was in college, there was really no clear path for a kid from North Carolina who wanted to be uh, a comic book professional. So I did something else. I got a, you know, a music degree and, and briefly taught band and uh, disliked it. <laughs> I, have, I have, you know, great respect for teachers, don't get me wrong, but it was just an ill fit for me because I really wanted to be in the comics business. And and after several years of fumbling post-college, I kind of, you know, found my way, uh, first of all, by writing for the fan press that existed back then, uh, mainly Amazing Heroes magazine, which uh, was published by Fantagraphics. And, and that enabled me to... Uh, write not only historical articles, but uh, also write a lot of uh, profile pieces about brand new material coming out. And so I got to develop uh, what we called back then a Rolodex. (laughs) I actually had a Rolodex of uh, addresses, of uh, phone numbers of artists and writers and editors, and I'd call them and I'd be previewing their material on Amazing Heroes. And before long, I established contacts there, and uh, that just paid off for me. And Let's see, at the end of 1987, I, I got a job at Comico, uh, which most people say Comico, because that's that's what I said to when I saw it, C-O-M-I-C-O, uh, a comic book publisher long defunct mm-hmm. uh, now, but they were in the uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania uh, area, and uh, a publisher of uh, Grendel, uh, Mage, uh, Elementals, Mm-hmm. Robotech, Johnny Quest. Uh, so licensed and creator-owned books. And uh, I worked with Diana Schutz, a wonderful editor, wonderful person, wonderful teacher. I learned so much from her. I was there for a year and a half. I edited stuff like The Maze Agency, uh, written by Mike Barr, drawn by Adam Hughes, Adam's very first assignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I edited Elementals. Um uh, some really weird stuff like Sam and Max Freelance Police. I loved it. It was so funny. I was going to ask uh, about I that. Do a lot of, uh, ha- oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just going to ask, uh, like, what it, was it like working on a on a book like Sam and Max? Because yeah, it is so different. Yeah, it, it's just it, you know, it, I don't think I ever laughed as hard just reading a script. <laughs> uh, you know, Steve Purcell is amazing. He's been with Pixar for you know, quite a few years now and, and, and has an Oscar. For heaven's sake, for uh, Brave, which I saw a few minutes of that on uh, you know TV last night. By the way, just channel surfing, but uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, he yeah, wow, uh, just uh, a funny, funny, funny guy, really talented guy, Arthur Adams. Uh, 
worked with him on another project, uh, Gumby's Winter Fund Special. I edited that. Mm. Uh, so uh, at Kamiko, I was working with guys like Dave Stevens, uh, Steve Rude, and the guys I mentioned earlier. You know, and uh, yeah, wow, I mean, for you know a freshman and sophomore editor, my, my first couple of years in the business, to be able to you know, work with guys of that caliber, that was that was amazing, and. Uh, and then I got the job at DC. Uh, I edited at, at DC from uh, the late '80s through the mid '90s, and then went out to Dark Horse uh, in Portland, Oregon, for a few years. So at this point, I'd have been jumping around to different cities. Mm-hmm. And by the time the mid to late '90s rolled around, I was uh, uh, a couple of factors kind of led me uh, to to leave my jobs over the years. Uh, one of them was a uh, uh, progressive hearing loss I was having that was sort of depressing me, souring my disposition and making it difficult for me. I had not learned at the time the, the, uh, the coping skills and uh, had not acquired the right uh, software mm. uh, and, and uh, hardware, <laughs> like hearing aids like I have now, but uh, mm-hmm. now my hearing aids have you know, Bluetooth connectivity, so I'm hearing you in both ears and hear you fine. But... Uh, yeah, it. Uh, I, I sort of wafted away from comics, but then ended up coming back into it uh, in the early 2000s, largely through Tomorrow's and my work in comics history. And here I am now, 20 years later. So, I mean, obviously, that's a really you know, an interesting jump. Obviously, is you know, you you come in with Amazing Heroes, kind of working, uh, you know, in the industry, but kind of talking about the industry, and then you work directly in the industry and in editing, et cetera, and writing, and then you move to again more of a comics historian kind of standpoint with Back Issue Magazine. Um, you know, did that always feel very natural to you? And do you like? This is a weird question, but do you like almost the discussion and? Uh, kind of looking back at the history of comics almost more than the act of creating comics or you know how do you di- di- distinguish the two well you know it, it, it's all a matter of I, I guess a life progression with me and uh, I still would like to you know create some new comics if I had the opportunity but uh, you know the I, I'm not necessarily as a reader the demographic for the majority of the material that's being produced today. Mm. So uh, the opportunities that would uh, you know be available for me would be rather, rather limited in a in a in a field that's shrunk considerably over the years as well. Uh, does that mean I consider myself to be a dinosaur or whatever? I don't know. Uh, I, I it, the his, history thing. I literally stumbled into it. It, it. it wasn't my agenda when I started this years ago to become a comics historian, but it was a very natural and organic progression because I just love that stuff. I love the stuff from the 60s, 70s, and 80s because that's the stuff that really shaped me as a reader and as a creator. And it's the stuff that I go back and read again and again and again. I mean, right now on my uh, nightstand, I have a, uh, a Marvel epic collection for Doctor Strange, which would be the early 70s stories, the really trippy stories, and those are the ones that I started reading. The earlier Doctor Strange stuff, uh, you know, I, I was a little too young for mm. uh, when it was originally coming out, but the stuff that was coming out in the 70s that Steve Englehart was doing, uh, just mind-blowing stuff, was uh, just amazing to look at. And at that point, I was starting to you know, age into my teens, 
and comics were maturing along with me and so you know i kind of had that uh, that first generation perspective um as the editor of back issue today i yeah, I do harbor a bias in saying that the Bronze Age, the 70s and 80s in particular, uh, are you know an extremely influential you know, era for comics. Uh, mm-hmm. Other people who are passionate about different eras would argue the same for their respective uh, uh, eras. But for me, I look at the Bronze Age as being really kind of what turned comics into what they are today. It, mm-hmm. Comics matured. Uh, the, the medium matured at that point in the early 70s in particular uh, and then through the 70s you had fans of the medium who turned pro mm. and instead of being the guys who just kind of did it the way it was always done which the previous generations had done now, I'm not saying that there weren't people who didn't challenge the material uh, prior to that but in the golden age and the silver age it still largely was a matter of just kind of doing it the way it had been done. I mean, uh, you know, six panels per page. Mm. Uh, <laughs> nobody rarely uh, uh, ever ventured from that. And then in the, maybe in the late 60s, starting with Steranko and Neil Adams, and then in the 70s with this, you know, explosion of guys from Starlin to Simonson to Kaluta, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they, they started to really shake things up visually and, and just, uh, you know, blow out the six-page grid that most uh, comics have done and just do wild, imaginative stuff. And uh, that was when I was coming of age. Mm. And uh, that just captivated me. I, I It started to sort of age out of comics, but was lured right back in. <laughs> I, I couldn't get away because of this stuff. I mean, Neil Adams taking over Batman and, you know, and the, the creature of the night aspect of Batman and so yes I was lured in by pals bam you know all that stuff <laughs> you know uh, but uh, but then as I was you know at the age when I was at least for my generation so I was supposed to stop reading comics I couldn't help but get deeper and deeper in because this stuff was just maturing with me now there was so, sort of a um negative that accompanied that as, as comics became more and more mature and the uh, creators were really doing their best to take comics into new directions by the time you hit the mid and the mid-80s, excuse me, and were deconstructing stuff with uh, Watchmen mm-hmm. and Dark Knight, uh, really taking it into new directions. By that point, I'm in my 20s, and this is just blowing my mind. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and that's when I'm starting to really inch into the business. But um, one of the most profound things that we ever published in back issue was back issue number 79. It was a look at the Charlton characters uh, as they were absorbed into the DC universe with Crisis. Hmm. And there was an interview there with Dave Gibbons. And Dave was talking about the parallels between the Charlton heroes, which became DC characters, which of course would be, you know, Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, mm-hmm. um, uh, The Question, etc. Uh, and uh, their doppelgangers, the, the Watchmen characters, which, uh, you know, Dr. Manhattan, uh, 
you know, uh, Night Owl, uh, Rorschach, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so Dave Gibbons actually sort of apologized for Watchmen. <laughs> he obviously did not regret the work. The, the work was, uh, you know, absolutely and uh, uh, indisputably, um, you know, just uh, influential, but he regretted that so many people tried to copy it. Mm. And then it became sort of the flavor du jour. And by extension, sort of started to shape what the entire industry became. So, uh, you know, when he and Alan Moore were concocting Watchmen off in their corner of the universe, uh, they were really just trying to do something really adult and uh, cerebral uh, and different with superheroes, little knowing that everybody would jump on that bandwagon and then all of a sudden, you know, Casper <laughs> and uh, you know Bugs Bunny, the stuff that that uh, lured me into comics as a small child, you know, those decades ago. Uh, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find anything that would have that uh, that young audience appeal in the medium after Watchmen and uh, and everything. So, uh, yeah, Dave was almost apologetic for, for that, while still being immensely proud and under- understandably so for the masterpiece that is Watchmen. So. Uh, all of this stuff was going on while I was aging as well, and you know, so I guess it was just a natural progression for me to become a historian. Uh, had I had the maturity earlier and not been so, you know, emotionally young when I was at the editor's chair uh, at these different companies, I would have lasted a lot longer. Mm. You know, um, in the past, I blamed my hearing loss and other things for. Uh, only being at a company for say three years here three years there or whatever but uh it uh, in retrospect i look back now uh, in my uh 60s and yeah, you know, everybody does this you know it's a, when you as you age you you start to look back and just coulda shoulda woulda mm-hmm. and for me coulda shoulda woulda i just i just i uh, i do wish that i had had the maturity to uh been able to better deal with politics uh, some of which were you know stemming from uh my, my hearing loss, uh, some of the issues I was having was just uh, inability to perceive um, uh, data properly because I was, and my hearing loss wasn't uh, appro- appropriately uh, treated. And so I was missing things and missing cues and uh, mm. uh, perceived as aloof because people would talk to me and I wouldn't respond. Well, I didn't hear you. <laughs> you know? yeah. It was really something as simple as that. Man, I just wish that uh, you know, going back, I wish I could go back and and fine tune a few of those things. I, I do have that regret. I have to admit it, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm still you know proud of the stuff I did when I was in comics, and uh, and uh, more of my stuff now is getting reprinted, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I just wrote a a uh, introduction for uh, uh, Omnibus Edition is coming out for the second uh, volume of DC's Who's Who. Mm. I was the guy behind the loose leaf Who's Who of the 90s. And, That's right. Uh, uh, yeah, not the sole editor of it, but I, I started it and uh, and uh, really worked with the designers to you know create its, create its look. And here in my office, I have a Diamond uh, Gem Award for it as innovation of the year 1990 oh, wow. I'm proud of that yeah that's pretty cool but uh, yeah but you know the historical thing I my preference for reading is still the old stuff um, 
Mm -hmm. I'm reading the Hulk omnibus now, the early Hulk stories, and I love reading this stuff now uh, chronologically, um, just to kind of see what how these guys and the were and guys, many of the creators, were unfolding mm -hmm. the stories of the characters. Yeah, it's interesting when you read it issue after issue after issue and absorb it uh, as uh, an unfolding tapestry because that's not what they were really doing. You know, they were just cranking out whatever had to come out this month. Exactly. And, uh, and yeah, you're lucky if they were all pieced together. Now, I, I want to ask about the kind of the genesis of back issue. So, as you said, kind of off podcast, but you know, next year is the 20th anniversary of Back Issue Magazine, um, and again, it's a tremendous historical record of some, some fantastic interviews throughout the years and discussions of you know books that people may have forgotten about or didn't even know about, and it really allows people to kind of understand the full breadth of kind of comic book history. And I love the themes that you guys do in, in each issue, etc. But you know, what was the kind of initial genesis of launching Back Issue through Tomorrow's Publishing? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for the kind words about Back Issue um, and the themes. I, I particularly love the themes. Uh, uh, but John Morrow approached me. He wanted to do a new magazine. Uh, I had done two books with John. Uh, let's see, the first one is Captain Action, which was um, that was my very first book, uh, comics and pop culture history book, and Captain Action is essentially the... Uh, a superhero equivalent of G.I. Joe. And so I wrote a, a history of that, and uh, John published it, and then I uh, wrote a biography of Dick Giordano, who was my boss at D.C. Uh, he was the executive editor, editorial director, actually, by the time I was there, and of course the long-standing artist and uh, former editor as well. And so I did... Uh, bio of Dick and both those books went well and John was happy with the work I was doing and the fact that I always spent my deadlines and so he wanted to do a new magazine because he had just lost comic book artist hmm. which was you know edited and designed by John B. Cook who uh, had taken it from Tomorrow's to a Top Shelf for a brief publishing stint and um so he wanted something new, and, and John actually created the title back issue and asked me if I'd be interested in doing it and uh, predicated on the uh, relationship we'd have from the books. And I said, heck yeah. Uh, at that point, I had uh, largely gotten out of comics. I was uh, working sort of a, uh, a, a semi-corporate job in communications and, uh, uh, and looking for an opportunity to get back in. And uh, this provided that door. Um, the themes that you mentioned, uh, that was sort of uh, my contribution to the magazine from day one. Uh, because I didn't want to do just a generic comics history magazine that would be a, you know, a grab bag of different stuff. Um, because that might be easier for me editorially. Uh, because <laughs> if something failed to come in, I could grab something else that's already in the queue. But uh, the themes were there for two reasons. For one, to give it an editorial structure. And to me, that also gives us something to market. I mean, the very first issue was DC versus Marvel. We had this wonderful George Perez, um, Batman versus Captain America cover. And uh, it was published in uh, November of 2003, which was concurrently with uh, the uh, concurrent with uh, the JLA Avengers 
crossover that Marvel and DC was doing together. You know, that was important. Uh, and the last time the two companies uh, really did uh, a big project together, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, the JLA Avengers book that Kurt Busiek and, uh, you know, George Perez did. And so that was good timing for us. But uh, the themes also provided something to keep it fresh for me to, um, you know, not that I'm any more important than any other reader, but I'm the guy who's holding the reins of the magazine. So if I'm bored, <laughs> you know, the readers are going to be bored. So uh, I, I just wanted to do something that was, you know, fresh each issue. And so for me now, uh, you know, right now, I'm literally, uh, I'm proofreading uh, issue 139 today. And... Um, Issue 140 is uh, about to start being designed. Now, now we're 140 issues in, uh, and each one is fresh for me. Some themes are maybe a little more interesting to me than others, but I'm sort of honor-bound to the readers and to the medium to cover as many different types of comics as possible. And so the theme, the thematic structure has essentially made every issue fresh. I mean, uh, 140 that uh, my designer is about to start on is a dinosaurs issue. So it has stuff like um, you know, the Xenozoic Tales with Mark Schultz and an interview with uh, William Stout. And then uh, articles about Jurassic Park and Dinosaurs for Hire, uh, Godzilla and Dark Horse, etc., etc. Uh, the one that I'm proofreading is a Marvel-themed issue, but is not ready for primetime heroes. These characters from the Bronze Age that uh, just never quite made it, you know? Uh, you know, Stingray, uh, Star Fox, although he disappeared in the Eternals movie, so uh, he did finally get a shot at primetime. But uh, characters like that, Wondar, uh, Thundra, uh, Doc Samson, uh, characters who were really kind of interesting, and nobody sets out to create a a loser, you know, but, but not, everybody can, not everybody can be, you know, the, uh, the marquee value guy. You know, somebody's got to be there in the backup. You know, somebody's got to sing behind the diva. Uh, so, uh, uh, so that's kind of what these characters are. And it's kind of a really fun theme to string the stories of these characters together in an issue. So, yeah, well, here we are going strong 20 years in. It just uh, it's exciting. It blows my mind. I am thrilled and honored, quite frankly, to still be doing this because I have settled into a very, very you know comfortable but exciting you know groove with this. It, mm-hmm. It's not a rut. It, it is a groove. The the magazine moves along like a well oiled machine. I've got some really talented uh, and enthusiastic writers who contribute. Uh, and, and it's not the same bunch of guys uh, every issue, you know. Uh, some contribute more than others, but a group of people who cycle in and out, <clears throat> excuse me, and they, they keep it fresh. And, um, you know, there are different people who have different uh, purviews and different realms of expertise. And so it keeps the magazine fresh and it keeps us going. One thing, I mean, which is so interesting about because of the way that you, you know, you do approach the themes is that it allows you to kind of parachute in and out of many different types of books that you guys are talking about. Like even the one you're, you're mentioning with, you know, kind of dinosaurs and comics, which can literally go anywhere um, because there's so many like here and there. 
that you can kind of populate an entire magazine's worth of you know uh, of stories. Um, one thing that comes up that I really enjoy about again thinking about your magazine as you know the historical record is a lot of the interviews that people are having with you know with creators that you know may not be here much any longer. I mean, I, I don't want to say that they're all getting older, but I mean you're talking especially when you're looking at Bronze Age. Um, you know, it's the opportunity to kind of get these stories from people uh, while they're still able to, and then you know populate all these different uh, magazines with these great anecdotes and stories. You're absolutely right. You know, and that, that's been the, um, I, I guess the thing I, I didn't anticipate uh, 20 years ago going into this, that how valuable this would be as, uh, you know, uh, uh, for the historical record. And, and uh, you know, early on, uh, when we started, I was encouraging my guys, the writers, to capture interviews with Silver Age people, even though our purview is largely the Bronze Age, because most of the Silver Age guys were still working mm-hmm. in the, um, the uh, 70s and, and 80s uh, for the Bronze Age. But I, I said, you know, back then, you know, we're not going to have these guys around that much longer, so it's just important that we capture their stories, not knowing that 20 years in, so many of the people who produced the Bronze Age comics that I, you know, really grew up on uh, have passed as well. I mean, just very recently, as you and I are speaking, you know, George Perez, just a couple of weeks ago, and the week before that, Neil Adams, before him, mm-hmm. uh, is, yeah, uh, the strange byproduct from this for me was forming relationships with some of these guys. A handful of them I had worked with at DC, you know, Kamiko and Dark Horse. So uh, the the Bronze Age guys, I had some working relationships with, like, you know, Doug Mensch or Paul Galassi. I did uh, Batman versus Predator 2 with them at Dark Horse. So, mm. and, and, and they're very much alive. Thank you very much. They are, yeah. But, uh, yeah, some of the other guys that uh, did books you know, the Silver Age books that I read as a child, like Nick Carty. You know, I I liked the Teen Titans when I was a little boy, and then as I got older, uh, you know, Aquaman, and then he was drawing the Brave and the Bold, and then by the time uh, the Seven Days rolled around, he did so many covers for DC. Well, I just got to be the best of friends with Nick. He was sort of a grandfatherly like character for me. And every couple of Fridays, he would call me up. And, uh, and, and and just you know, chew the fat for a bit. And he always would start to call with, I know you don't want to hear from an old guy like me. And I said, Nick, I love hearing from you, you know? <laughs> and I, I, even if I was really busy, I would just stop for a couple of minutes because here's the the byproduct, the, the thing that I did not anticipate. Not only did was there value in capturing their stories, but for the older people like Nick, like Kurt Swan, like, you know, Gil Kane, mm-hmm. these guys who are just you know, legends who uh, created a vast body of work which keeps getting reprinted to this day. You know, they were elderly and they uh, really appreciated hearing from people from my generation or a little younger to who just said thank you and you know I really love your work and uh, it validated what they did. And as I've gotten older and have you know seen my own parents you know one by one age and pass and now we're down to one out of my family but one elderly um, you know, father-in-law is still alive and I'm mm-hmm. having dinner with him tonight I'm looking forward to that my, <laughs> my wife care gifts for him 
It's just when people reach a certain age, it is rewarding for them to have someone say, you know, thank you for the work you did. You know, I appreciate it and I appreciate you. Mm-hmm. And that I did not know that I would get uh, getting into this. But, you know, the, the folks just uh, really being appreciative of our interest in their work was uh, is extremely validating and, and, and rewarding. So, yeah, glad to be able to do that for them. For sure. Because they did a lot for us with entertainment. Well, it's always interesting with the comic book industry, you know, that, you know, if you're a fan of comic books, there's going to be people who you view as, you know, comic book famous, like they're really famous to you because you're in the industry and or that you follow the comic book industry. But there's still people who could walk around the street and people probably wouldn't know who they were. But uh, to be able to talk to those people, like even in the lifespan of this podcast, which is actually going to be ending soon um, in two months, but I've had the opportunity over the last you know six years to talk to a lot of people, um, you know, creators and be able to tell them like, that work meant a lot to me and um one actually it's funny i've had ron friends on the show like nine times we've talked for like i don't know 15 hours um and we did two full episodes like four and a half hours just talking about the uh, the book he worked on in the late 90s with tom defalco a next which was a hugely influential book for me when i was younger i was about like 13 14 when it came out i really responded to it so i was i reached out to ron and i said let's do a creator commentary let's go through it and he's like i don't think anyone else has ever cared to do this and i'm like yeah but i, I it matters to me and as we go through it, I realized that that was one of the books where he got to do more of the plotting than he used, usually did with Tom um, and got to drive a little bit more of the bus. And so I would kind of pick out certain beats. He'd be like, well, that, that was mine. Like, that was my idea. And again, really appreciating that. And so that was, you know, to your point, being able to talk to people who've created this work that meant a lot to you and actually be able to articulate to them is really impactful. And it's it's good for both. Like, I like to be able to tell someone and, you know, it's nice thing about the comic industry being the way it is. I mean, never be able to tell a movie star or a TV star what their work meant to me and maybe they won't care but the fact that I can talk to combo creators and you can, people can go to conventions etc and actually see these people while they're still here and say this meant a lot to me is huge you're right and, and, and I couldn't agree with you more and you know and the, the point you bring up too about the uh, 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 I guess the immediacy the the, the uh, you, you can reach out and touch someone in comics, <laughs> literally, you know, at, at a convention or at least on a podcast like we're doing today, uh, uh, in a Zoom, you know, uh, conversation or meeting. It, it's just you—you you can do this, and there really isn't any other medium out there that I can think of, uh, you know, an entertainment medium that allows you that opportunity. And you know, way back in the uh, Silver Age. I, I guess Stan Lee sort of started this to some degree because he was very approachable. And obviously, you know, Stan was a great showman. He was like a carnival barker. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he sort of created in his soapboxes this attitude of, uh, or this, this illusion that the, the bullpen, the marble bullpen, was this, you know, fun and frolicking place. And they had they're fun and they frolicked at times but you know at times there were arguments and there were deadline pressures and it was a job and and uh like anything else but i think he sort of opened the door for that that uh friendliness in a way and, and approachability and then the conventions certainly continue to allow that so uh yeah i would love to say tell sting how much his music has meant to me over the years will i ever have that opportunity i don't know <laughs> but uh, it's, it's highly unlikely <laughs> but 
but I've been able to do it to Jim Apero and other people like that whose work just really, you know, affected me, you know, tremendously and shaped my life. And it's stuff that I will go back and, and reread time and time and time again. Mm-hmm. One thing that I, again I really appreciate about your magazine is it allows certain personalities that like so you know I'm well, right now I'm like I'm 38 years old so obviously I got into comics kind of in the early to mid 90s so that's kind of my my period if you know if you go by the idea that you know the best time to be in comics is, or the best time period of comics is when you're 12 then I guess mine is like 95 which is not necessarily the best objectively but um, a character or um, a personality who always shows up and I realize so much of his work had a huge impact on this type of stuff I like in comics is Mark Gruenwald and so I've really appreciated going through back issue over the years and you've had you know multiple things where Gruenwald obviously plays a part and being able to talk to older creators uh when i've been doing the podcast i always ask them kind of you know what's your mark Grunwald story because i'm just so interested in this character who meant so much to what the kind of soul of marvel was in that period um and and being able to again learn more about him not just his work in comics but also his personality and how he affected comics um through your magazine has been tremendously helpful because i've always i don't know i don't want to say he's my spirit animal but i do feel like there's something about the mark Grunwald mystique and who that person was and what he was for the industry at a very specific time into Marvel um, that back issues has really helped to have a, a further window into that world. Oh, well, thank you. I'm assuming that you have read issue 103 which had the uh, the, the, the piece that his wife yes. wrote about him. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, that one in particular, but a number of other pieces as well. And, and Mark's name co- comes up constantly, uh, you know, to this day. So, uh, well, it just you just have to wonder what else he could have done uh, had he lived. He, he certainly died way, way too soon. And what a that, that was a that that sent shockwaves through the industry the day he died. I was uh, an editor at Dark Horse, uh, and and I heard that day, you know, and this is like what? And uh, I mean, Mark was young and and healthy. You know, uh, I, I, I don't mean to disparage anyone, but sometimes if somebody is you know, older or, or particularly unhealthy, uh, you know, <laughs> you're, you're saddened by their passing, but it's not necessarily surprising. But, you know, Mark ate healthy foods and jogged and all this stuff, too. And it was, it's like the it, it, it just was totally surprising uh, when he passed. And uh, he he was just magical, just uh, yeah, a really fun guy. And and, and yeah, you've read no end of uh, Mark Ruinwald stories in back issue. And I dare say there will be more in the future <laughs> because people do love sharing them. And uh, and his wife Catherine, uh, yeah, she was just really so you know uh, accommodating and, and forthcoming and sweet uh, in, in uh, sharing information when we did. That, that special article about him back in issue 103. And that was also accompanied in, by an article about Archie Goodwin, who right. uh, is up there with Mark. I mean, if, if you want to name two people in comics who A, died too young, and B, uh, or well, a, a, <laughs> wait a minute, A and okay, well, one and B, I, I'm, I'm getting confused here, about one and two, or A and B, but um, who just left a great mark uh, and Everybody just has, you know, wonderful, loving things to say about them and, and just a tremendous amount of respect. And uh, so it was a no-brainer for me editorially to, to combine
find their stories under the cover of one issue. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do a, an, editor, an editor's issue anyway, and uh, so I, I, you know, there's no one bigger I could think of to, to, to you know, focus on in that issue, and you know, proud to have done that one. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm, I'm curious about, because obviously you said kind of the Bronze Age is the, 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 the main bailiwick of a back issue, but obviously you have had issues that, you know, that go a little bit further and start to kind of go into that 90s territory. Is that, do you feel when, you, when you're doing those types of issues, like I know you did the one with, you know, Cable and Deadpool, for example, um, do you feel more like, you know, this is a little bit outside of our comfort zone, or how do you feel about how that doing issues like that kind of reflects on what the main ethos is of the magazine? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I mean, that that is where we're inching, you know, toward at this point. Um, we, there's still a lot of material in the Bronze Age we have yet to cover. Mm-hmm. But I also have to keep in mind, um, you know, some degree of uh, commerciality. Uh, we, we, uh, we, we do articles on obscure series. And uh, we've done some really weird stuff, uh, and, and I still and I'm still discovering it. I mean, at times I, I go to a number of different websites that will show uh, a gallery of comics that were published by um, every single publisher, you know, month to month to month, and I literally scroll through this stuff just to see what's there to, to sometimes connect the dots. Uh, and to see what I have missed, uh, you know, having read comics for so long, uh, and, and being in the earlier in the newsstands and, and then in the business, um, I was aware of a lot of this stuff, but, and I have a pretty good memory, but it's not an infallible memory. So going back and looking at these websites to see stuff that was there, you know, sometimes, Oh, we, we haven't gotten to this. So that will, you know, remind me of something that we need to cover and back issue, but but again, I guess eventually we will pretty much tap the vein of uh, the Bronze Age, and, and still, you know, quite frankly, too, time is marching forward, and uh, you know the the Copper Age of the you know late eighties and nineties uh, that's got some age on it as well, and we we have been dipping into that more and more, and the two thousands, well, gee, now that's twenty years ago. So um, I will be having the magazine move forward more and more. It's funny that some of the older guard that are just diehard Bronze Age babies will sort of whine sometimes about it. <laughs> and uh, I love you guys, but, you know, because I'm with you. But, uh, but I also, am, the thing we do is there is sort of a back issue voice. It's not a singular voice. So there are so many people who contribute to the magazine and I let them you know, do so in their own voices. But there is a tone that uh, I guess I started and it's a positive one. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's not snarky. Um, it's not scholarly nor is it overly Spanish. It's somewhere in between that. Uh, you know, we look at material through the lens of intellectual uh, curiosity. Uh, we look at it from the perspective of a fan who is a mature adult who <laughs> uh, wants to learn more about the stories behind the stories that shaped us. Uh, you know, as, as you said, you know, 12 years old, that's a, that's, a, that's a key age for a comics reader. 
you're you're really starting to come of age and you're looking you're probably at that awkward age though where you're having a hard time identifying uh your own identity is is uh, starting to shape itself and and you're looking for something to connect to and connect with and oftentimes the comic characters will help guide you on that journey and that happened with me and it happened with you and uh and so i i take that very seriously and we never forget that mm. we never forget that although we're looking at uh you know the the stories behind the stories and to me that's what's the most fascinating thing um that you know what was going on at the time at, at the business at the publisher uh in the mind of the writer or the artist and in, in that person's life to uh, help shape that story that we read because you know you don't need a back issue magazine just to find out what happened in issue 105 of your favorite comic you know you can uh do a quick uh you know web search and then you'll get that synopsis and uh, every now and then i have to rein in a writer who just who wants to maybe do too many story synopses that's not what we're all about you know you really have to you know sort of connect the the stories and you know, share what the overall story that we're being told uh, mm-hmm. would, would would say what the uh, what was the mindset of the the writer where was he going uh you know how did he succeed if he failed don't mock him uh you know uh, let's let's look at you know what might have been improved upon and you know what the writer might have uh, done if had he had a chance to do it today so sure. trying to keep that positive tone i think has actually kept us has kept our head above the water you know there's so much snark out there now Absolutely. i really like our magazine to uh, you know kind of be an escape from that and mm-hmm. uh, a happy place to go it's, it's not a rose-colored glasses uh you know uh, shangri-la where everything's <laughs> always perfect because you know some of the stuff that we cover the you know series failed you know not everything is a hit you know why did it fail you know we we look at it uh from the perspective of uh trying to analyze why it failed but not not make fun of it not mock it for sure uh, that doesn't mean we can't be playful but uh yeah yeah we we try to treat everybody with uh, mutual respect it's interesting you say that because I mean I know even just in the way I interact with my fandom and how I feel about creators etc has definitely changed just by you know doing my podcast because as I said like I've interviewed a lot of people over the years now and it really you know talking to people behind stories that you may not have liked really helps you reframe why you didn't like it what didn't work about it and really start to look at it in a I don't want to say kinder light per se, but like, you know, they weren't trying to tell a bad story. You may not have liked that story. And I, one thing I've definitely become very aware of as the time has gone on is being able to distinguish, well, this was, this book wasn't for me, but it's not a bad book. It's meant for someone else and that's okay. And there's, there's a market for that. Or there's, there's going to be another fan for this particular work. It just happens to not be B and that's okay. And I think as a younger person, when I first started kind of reviewing comics in my twenties, I don't think I appreciated that in the same way and now I can you know be a lot more you know understanding about the work and say well it wasn't for me but that's okay and there's still a lot of merit here and I think once you as you've obviously been able to do having worked in the industry as well but once you can kind of look under the hood and see well no one sets out to, to make a bad comic so if it doesn't work there's probably another reason for it it's not necessarily just bad there's other things that go on there and that's, that's very true and very astute and, and, and 
the transformation that you have gone through is just, you know, it's, it's part of the natural process. As, as we age and mature, you, yeah, I mean, years ago, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. I mean, I, I did, I did uh, improv, uh, and this was also, you know, when I was also trying to get into comics. And I was doing a lot of that stuff, a lot of character acting, and I, I was much more cynical and, and, and mocking of, of you know things that were going on around me, and I think that kind of goes with the territory of your twenties as a young man hmm. too. You know, you've got a lot of energy, and uh, if you don't like something, you're going to be very, very vocal about it. Now, uh, as, as you age, hopefully you'll uh, you know, garner some maturity along the way, <laughs> and and uh, and an understanding again of the things that we've been discussing uh a, a movie that i saw some years back and i i, I love tim burton's stuff it's, his stuff is just so out there oftentimes but uh my personal favorite tim burton movie is ed wood now ed wood is known as the worst filmmaker of all time but tim burton made ed wood the most sympathetic and lovable character <laughs> uh, you know and Johnny Depp played him you know and then uh, you know uh, Martin Landau won this Oscar uh, for best supporting uh, actor and, and he deserved it as Bella Lugosi he was wonderful wonderful but this was probably Burton's most linear story mm. because he was kind of you know working from a real story and uh, if there's a a, a weakness, and I hesitated even using that word because, again, I love I love Burton's work, but his he is so much a visionary with his storytelling, and sometimes just a you know the, a, a linear path might be lost to him at, at, at certain you know stages of his storytelling because he's going for visuals and and, and broad and wild ideas, and but with Ed Wood, it was black and white. You know, and literally, he filmed it in black and white. And mm -hmm. it was this, you know, this basic story of this this filmmaker who, uh, you know, really kind of earnestly wanted to do these big projects. And did he have the talent to deliver what he wanted to? Well, you know, probably not. But uh, he he believed in what he was doing. He believed in this this group of misfits that he gathered together. And uh, what a charming film. But it made you sort of respect Ed Wood and his work more. Uh, does that mean you're not going to laugh at or wince at some of the lines of Plan Nine from Outer Space or Glenn <laughs> or Glenda if you watch that stuff again? No, you're going to you're going to laugh at it, but it's still you understand it a little bit better. Mm -hmm. So yeah, back issue. We just try to keep our head above water a little bit and not uh, not uh, succumb to. Yeah, too much cynicism or snark and, and just uh, remember that everybody has good work and sometimes, you know, you have a, everybody has a bad day and uh, sometimes you're writing or drawing a comic book uh, when you're having a <laughs> bad day and, uh, you know, and it's, there's a permanence about it. Uh, some of the stuff that I did in the past, I'm like mortified by as a writer, as an editor, you know, there are a couple of mistakes that made it into stuff that I did I, I should have been more careful uh, now I try to be and uh, but still you know there, there's going to be a typo or two that, that gets past me and uh, or every now and then it's just uh, 
a flat-out uh, error, a factual error that uh, that gets past the, the writer and then me and then the proofreader and then and then when it's in print, you know, somebody writes you that letter or that message or mm. and you go like, oh my god, you know, and then you know, <laughs> but then so you print a retraction and an apology and and you move on and then you know another you know eight issues a year come out and then another year passes and another year passes and here we are 20 years into this thing and uh yeah and overall though it's just been mostly a a colossal joy and i think that uh as you so nicely said thank you we've uh captured a lot of oral histories and, and histories of comic books that have taken place and a lot of the stuff has been way above the radar and big hits and some of it's been well below the radar and <laughs> obscure stuff that and but then I, I get these letters I get these messages from people and this is a recurring thing that I had either forgotten this story or, or this this series excuse me or I'd never heard of this but now I'm really curious about it and I went out and I bought the trade or I went out and looked out uh, looked up the back issues and read this stuff and you know thank you for making me aware of this so that's kind of a fun byproduct of the magazine to uh to sort of maybe you know defibrillate some stuff <laughs> that's been collecting dust out there in the comics morgue yeah so, uh how cool is that how Very cool. cool is that i do have to say I, I know you said you didn't come up with the name but i'm almost surprised that no one had used the title back issue for you know a, a comic book magazine previous it almost seems like it's right there <laughs> Yeah, I know, I know. And uh, when John brought it to my attention, it, it for me, clarified the distinction between the magazine we were replacing, Comic Book Artist, which has since you know come back as Comic Book Creator. Mm-hmm. Well, that's about the people who did the work. Ours is really about the comics themselves. Now, naturally, we involve the people who did the work and we explore their work, but still, it's rare that we would actually we're going to be doing a Neil Adams issue coming up and it, but then again it's not a Neil Adams issue it's about the work of Neil Adams in the Bronze Age in the 70s mm-hmm. so the articles are about Superman and about Batman and about Green Lantern Green Arrow and about the advertising stuff that he did so it's about the work uh, and and the in the comics, not necessarily a you know a profile of the artist. So I, I've left that to comic book creator, comic book artist, and other sources and, and podcasts like like yours. And and then there are no end of a uh, uh, creator you know books mm-hmm. that are biographies and art books about people. So why do we need to do that when our mission should be giving you a look at you know those Captain America stories that Mark Gruenwald wrote or uh, you know an article about uh, this obscure series that you maybe never heard of that uh, you know a couple of weird things I'm just I mean, sports comics of the 70s DC Comics did two really weird series called Strange Sports Stories <laughs> and Champion Sports Stories Bizarre things. These are two little things that I still have yet to cover because uh, I I haven't found a theme to stick these things into. I'm, I doubt I will ever do a sports comics uh, mm-hmm. theme because that's just a little 
I mean, it sounds broad, but it's actually kind of narrow because there aren't that many of them out there. And sure. I, I'm afraid it would be, you know, maybe just a little non-commercial for our main audience. But I've got to figure out how to get that obscure stuff into the magazine one day. There is still Bronze Age stuff out there for us to cover. <laughs> How, how do you, I know I have to let you go in a minute, but how do you kind of clarify, like when you're starting to develop, you know, in broad strokes, the, you know, the, the broader theme, like, is it coming with a, do you start with the broader theme and then just kind of look down to like, what, what would kind of fit into this natural theme or like, what is, how do you start the genesis of, you know, the creation of, you know, which, which pieces are going to fit in this, in this magazine? Well, the majority of the time, um, the answer to your question is, you know, the, the question itself is, is we, the, the theme comes to mind. Uh, oftentimes I would think of it. Sometimes they're recommended by a reader. And when that happens, I give the, uh, the reader props and print and send them a, a cop copy as well. Um, and sometimes uh, one of the writers uh, who contribute to the magazine will say, uh, you know, why don't we do an issue on this? Or have you ever thought about doing an issue on, you know, whatever um, and and so then it's a trickle down effect uh, sometimes it's a it's a easy I mean when it was a reader idea to do a dinosaur <laughs> issue but so what I did then is I went to um, the Grand Comic Book Database and I started just to search around and working within our time frame and I literally just did a search, a, a title search on dinosaurs, and then you know, <laughs> narrowed it down to dates. And then I get this list of uh, different titles that had dinosaur in it. And then we start to work down from that. And then I, you know, I'm forming my, uh, uh, you know, subject list. And then you go from there. Um, and other times, um, the issue I mentioned earlier, the not ready for prime time players, it had sort of a bizarre genesis where I had one of my writers uh, was really jonesing to do an article about Stingray, who, <laughs> as I write in the editorial on that issue, you know, Stingray, well, he's like, okay, uh, you know, if, if you need an aquatic character in the Marvel Universe, it's Namor, the Submariner. Uh, or, as I said as a kid, as probably every kid says, Submariner. <laughs> and then, uh, and, and if he's not available, you go to Triton of the uh, Inhumans. Well, you know, if the Inhumans are busy then you finally got Stingray. You know, he's the guy who, he's a, he's a research scientist, and he's like the, uh, the, the the gal who's like waiting by the phone, waiting for somebody to call, you know, for a date or whatever. <laughs> it's just like, you know, somebody pay attention to me. So, but I was thinking, you know, how am I ever going to feature Stingray? We've already done aquatic characters, you know, there have been science-based characters, and and, but then there were a few other characters like that that just kind of fell through the cracks. And then finally, uh, I just finished, and this is the reason why you and I are talking today instead of last week as we were supposed to talk. Uh, I finished a book for tomorrow's called The Team Up Companion, and um, it is a source book for Team Up comics of the Silver and Bronze Age, which would be The Brave and the Bold. Mm. Uh, DC Comics Presents, Marvel Team-Up, etc. And so one of those Team-Up comics is Marvel 2-in-1, which is the Thing uh, book, which, to go back to Mark Gruenwald, had Mark Gruenwald and Ralph Macchio, they worked together 
on a number of book uh, uh, thing stories about Project Pegasus, and and then they did a follow up to that uh, called the uh, Serpent Crown Affair, which mm-hmm. involved Stingray. <laughs> who, uh, so, so I got reminded of this character, so I've got to put him in back issue. And going through Marvel two and one, I started to get reacquainted with Wondar and mm. Thundra. Oh, yeah. and all these characters and I said so I, yeah okay these are the guys who never quite made it and then also when writing about Marvel team up there was a classic issue that um, Chris Claremont did which teamed Spider-Man and the not ready for primetime players the uh, season 2 cast the season 3 cast of uh, Saturday Night Live and then it all came to me okay the not ready for primetime heroes and so that's when all these characters at Marvel that I kind of never had a theme for would just lump them together and they really fit really well together in this <laughs> issue Wood God you know Thunderbird who was the uh, originally he kind of got a reboot you know he was the uh, new X-Man who you know died in the second story and uh, but he ended up being a legacy character uh, you know with Warpath later on and, and so so there's a lot of stories to be told there, and they all fit together nicely in this issue. So that that issue kind of came about organically, but it was kind of a long, you know, uh, pathway to get there. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, the Neil Adams issue they said because uh, it's coming up, it uh, it has a couple of interviews that we've archived with him about Batman and Superman and. And then I wanted to do another look at uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, but a fresher perspective. And uh, I'm doing that one. And it's uh, called Lessons We Should Have Learned from Green Lantern, Green Arrow. Hmm. Now, as a, as a child and uh, uh, moving into my teens when that stuff was coming out in the early uh, 70s, um, it was very hopeful. And all these great parables about uh, racism and poverty and gender equality. And uh, now I look back 50 years later and, man, it's the same stuff is going on, you know, and it's just gotten worse. And we haven't learned anything from any of these stories that, uh, uh, well, some people have. It, it changed my life. Uh, you know, that Norman Lear's comedies uh, mm-hmm. definitely built my social conscience. But, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> You know, we our our country is still just uh, divided, and uh, more so than ever. And people don't get along. And and uh, wow, Green Arrow and Green Lantern were two. You know, they were hawking a dove. They were a, a conservative and a liberal, mm-hmm. and they worked together and they talked things out and they had common ground. And I really, really hope that we can, uh, I'm sorry to get political, but just find that again in our nation. And I'm going to have the challenge of writing this article, I'm sweating bullets over it, um, to talk about politics without getting too political mm-hmm. and to be able to walk that tightrope of, um, you know, trying to be enlightening and, and, and unifying uh, without picking sides and without making enemies of either side. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I live in the middle. I really try to live in the middle of all of this, and uh, and and I try to keep back issue there as well. Yeah. And, uh, and so this will be the big test for me to deal with, uh, which was sort of a politically charged 
series. Oh, for and, sure. Uh, yeah, and try to you know hopefully lead us uh, towards something positive out of it. So Wish I've, me luck. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck with that. Um, sounds like a tall Thank order, you. but I'm sh- I'm sure one you can uh, you can meet. So I've I have two final questions before I finally let you go. Yes, sir. Um, first would be so one thing that has been present throughout uh, back issue, which is so great, is all the uh, the original art that you reprint through Heritage, um, which is just it's it, it's really beautiful. It's really uh, well picked as well. So what is the how do you go about getting those pieces reprinted? Um, I have a long-standing agreement with Heritage that started years ago, uh, based on the the Captain Action book. And oddly enough, when I when I produced the Captain Action book, and it first came out in two thousand and two, well, not twenty years ago. Wow. wow. Um, <laughs> the uh, vice president of Diamond um, called me up, uh, John Snyder Jr., and he uh, he said, "I love your book." He said, "This is uh, you know, this is uh, an excellent way of doing a book this way. You 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 did an you know, oral histories of the people behind it. You, you did it as a source book. You did it as a history book, uh, a collector's guide. It was all of the above. And and he thanked me for it. And then it opened some doors and some people at Diamond. And then I uh, some people at Heritage were talking to people at Diamond, and somebody recommended me to go to Heritage to." Um, do some writing for them. So I got invited to go down to Heritage. I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time because of my Dark Horse Comics roots. Mm-hmm. And uh, Heritage had me come down on six different occasions to do some freelancing for them to write descriptions for comics for their catalogs. And how cool was that? I got to go to Heritage. This, uh, it's like going to a prison because <laughs> they have uh, all of these slabbed collector's comics, but also stuff like Jimi Hendrix's guitar, oh, wow. and Elvis shirt, I mean, all, all this, you know, jewelry, all this amazing stuff, uh, fine art in, in this this place. Uh, and so you, you literally had to go through multiple lockdown doors to get in and out of the, of the place to go in. And I would sit there, and they would bring me a stack of slab comics, and I would go through ECs, and I held several copies of Detective 27 in action. Oh, wow. One of my hands through this process. And the, I had to learn their language, which was uh, writing about the historical merit of the comic, but also the integrity of that particular copy as a collectible. But I learned the language, and they had a guide that I was working with. But And I just had a good relationship with them. And by the time back issue came along and I got busier and busier. I no longer had the time to keep going back. But I had a relationship with them and they allowed me to just reprint the, the art and I, uh, you know, plug Heritage and, and send them comp copies and it's just, you know, 20 years in, here we are. And uh, they uh, have allowed me to, uh, you know, use art from their website. Uh, and it's, it's nice to be able to show that organic method of what the comics art looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. It's as I said, it's 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 an extra added touch because I mean, it's one thing to have interior panels and covers, but to have you know original art that you wouldn't find elsewhere is really adds an extra dimension to the magazine for sure. Well, thank you, and I agree. And earlier on, on back issue, and earlier we we didn't say in the course of this conversation, but through the, at least the first half of its uh, lifespan, and probably a little longer than that, it was a black and white publication, and then uh, so. 
running the original art, I, I did more of it than I do now because we, over time, shifted to uh, a higher grade of paper and to color publication, and then it became a digital publication as well. So um, the color became very important. So I started to use the original art more judiciously mm. instead of uh, just peppering every single page with it. Uh, it would be an occasional seasoning, but uh, but used uh, you know wisely to where it's really a nice page or a significant cover that, that again just shows the more organic and natural process behind it. So when you see it in print, you can even actually see some of the you know the marginal notes. And uh, like I'm looking at a piece of original art here in my home office as a Dick Giordano piece, and for me, uh, when uh, that stuff is published, the black solidify, but here I actually see the uh, how the blacks were, you know, I can see the ink brush strokes where it's, it's you know, really natural. And when there's a paste up uh, of these old things, you know, I mean, these old things literally had, you know, the, the Comics Code Authority and the logos were <laughs> hand pasted onto the page. And sometimes they fall off and you've got glue residue and for, to see that stuff, it's, it's just a really natural thing that just shows the way it was. Mm-hmm. Now, my last question for you. So in 2019, uh, back issue tied for uh, an Eisner Award. So where is that Eisner Award? Uh, it is right here <laughs> in my <laughs> office. It is uh, next to that GEM Award that I mentioned to you. Yes, we've had the... Uh, the honor of being nominated four times, uh, even uh, two years ago, uh, or last year in 2021, we got nominated again, but we did have that tie uh, for the win in uh, 2019, and I, wow, well, what a great honor, and uh, how, that's another one of those how cool is that moments, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, we went through several years of back issue just never being nominated, and John Morrow would, yeah, he, he approached me one time he said I'm really sorry you're just not getting nominated and I said well you know it, uh, I, I take it in stride it's uh, we, we look at comics and we, we don't really you know celebrate the, the art of comics and oftentimes that's, that's that's what the Eisners focus on and when we finally got our nominations it just it really did mean some good but uh, you know the award that I get Adam is, is just being able to do this every day to, uh, to you know, speak with these creators, to talk to people like you who tell me that they, they appreciate it, to be doing this 20 years plus into it. I mean, come on. Wow. That, that's, a, that's an award. That's a reward. Um, and uh, to have a job doing this, it is so much fun. Even with the material that I might not be that interested in, uh, there are times when I have to work at it a little harder because for the stuff that, you know, floats my inner 12-year-old, <laughs> that, 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 that makes my spider sense tingle, uh, that's the really fun stuff. I, I love that. It's harder work when I don't know the material and I have to really focus on uh, it. And, and uh, But I learn something. And it's nice to be in my 60s and learn. I learn every day. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm actually starting to get older to where some people my age are having cognitive issues. Well, I'm as sharp as a tack, and it's largely because I read constantly and I keep learning. And uh, I, it, that's a blessing. It is an absolute blessing. So the Eisner is great. 
but it's just uh, it's, a, it's icing on the cake. Uh, just being able to do this is the award, and I love it. And uh, thank you for being interested enough and wanting to speak with me today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Again, it's a tremendous honor to be able to chat with you, and I'm a huge fan of the magazine, so I'll keep reading it as long as you keep putting it out. <laughs> that sounds great, and uh, good luck with you, whatever you do uh, after the uh, podcast. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's been successful, and green pastures to you, sir. Well, thank you very much.